Sorry for all the clicking noises going on while we harness and unharness up here, especially for you people along the tape program that hear all of this and wonder what's happening. We've got two microphones taped together, and uh, sometimes they fall right out of a little class that we have here because of their weight. Well, I think all of you know we had a very fine attendance at the ministerial conference over the weekend. We were here wall-to-wall -wall and people down the hallways and out in the lobby last Sabbath. I didn't get an accurate count. Maybe someone remembers. Do you know, Benny? We had about 55 or so, I think, here for the ministerial conference. Very short lived of necessity because with only one salaried ministry in the Church of God International outside of those few of us here out in the field, so-called, all of those men are self-employed, uh, plumbers, salesmen, contractors, people who are over their own businesses or whatever, and they all had to be back to work by Monday morning. So we had just that Sabbath and Sunday. The theme primarily that prevailed in the conference was on the role of the ministry, and I think it was made, made very poignant with regard to some of the letters we've been receiving lately, and one letter in particular that Mr. Ron Dark read, which was sent anonymously from a lady in the church. I speak of the church in a very broad sense, the worldwide church in this sense, down in Houston, I believe. Maybe I shouldn't reveal that, but no one could ever tell who she was. Some of the abuses that she enumerated in her letter with which the people were much, much beleaguered and put upon were almost unbelievable. If I hadn't received similar letters from other parts of the country and telephone calls literally over years, it would be very hard to believe that the lady was not being a complainer and was not perhaps stretching things and was uh, making a big mountain out of a molehill to assume that a minister could show so tightly rule and control in people's lives that he would say and do the things he was doing. Well, essentially, in the backwash of that and other types of information, we in the Church of God International were reinvestigating again pretty much all of the scriptures by the Apostle Paul to the young evangelist Timothy and to Titus and what Peter said in 1 Peter 5 and elsewhere about the role of the ministry. Just what is the ministry to do? Who are the ministers? How do they get to be ministers? I have marveled all of my life from the time that I was a very young boy over the almost incredible lust that grips the hearts of many individuals who desire to be in the ministry. To a large extent, I think some of the penalty phases that we have undergone is spin-off from the gradual building of a hierarchical pyramid form of government and a vertical chain of command called rank in the worldwide ministry to the point there were the chiefs and the peons in the church. In college, it became gradually, and I don't think this was intended in the early years, 1947 catalog certainly did not indicate it was so intended, that there were those who were sent out and then there were the failures. When commencement time came along, two or three or four days before the commencement address of a big Sandy or over in Brickett Wood or out in Pasadena, all of the young men sat there, and of course through the years we had gone through what is called a manpower meeting, until finally in disgust I canceled the manpower meetings in Pasadena. When they got rid of me, they inaugurated them or reinstituted them once again, because to me they became nothing more than a gossip session. 
And some of these men who knew virtually nothing about the young men they were discussing were talking about the pros and cons of their character and personality and their grades. And here was a big, thick file, all of the grades in their classes and a picture and their personal biographical sketch, their uh, application for college, every shred of information, including little notes from their dormitory monitors as to what kind of an attitude they were in, were gone over and poured over by the so-called Manpower Committee. Now, the Manpower Committee, naturally, if you understand human nature, led to a lot of evils. Very quickly, some of the young students found out who was on the Manpower Committee. So it was essential to butter up to those who were on the Manpower Committee, to get noticed by them. I likened what would happen just before commencement to the girl who goes to the dance all in her stiff crinoline formal with her little card. If you ever gone to a dance back in the 30s and 40s, and most of you haven't, but some of us that have gray hair did, maybe they still do it, I don't know, but they would make out dance cards and you would go ahead of time to the girls and you would ask for a dance. They would number the dances one through 15 or 20 or whatever there were. And I guess they would call numbered dances. Maybe they would have others in between when it was your choice. But the girls would have their dance cards fill out. And they would carry them on their wrist in a little cloth kind of a string with a little card made out. Oftentimes there was a little Miss Plain, you know, that sat by the wall. And the fellows would kind of walk along the room like they had nothing in the world to do but kind of talk to each other, look at the wallpaper or whatever. But in reality, they're kind of casing all the girls that are sitting there wondering, I wonder if I should ask that one to dance. And that's the way, to me, it began to look at near commencement time. The ministry playing the role of those who were waltzing around for all the world looking unconcerned, and all the students trying their desperate best to be noticed and hope that they got picked out. When the fateful announcement came, those who were picked to go into the field had it made. Their girlfriends were ecstatic. Because immediately, when so-and-so was going to New Orleans, and somebody was going to Poughkeepsie, and somebody else was going out to uh, Santa Fe, or to New York, or to Seattle, that meant salary, lease car, a trip, a honeymoon on the way through the Redwood Forest. It meant success. It meant we've got it made. Instantly, we have hands laid on. We are in the ministry. And boy, was that important. That was powerful stuff. For years and years and years, we preached some of the scriptures. I'm going to relate to you now very quickly. I want to turn to just a couple, three of them. I won't read them all. Won't read them all. First Corinthians 12, you're familiar with that, how God has set some of the church. Now, if you emphasize that word, verse 18, now hath God set the members. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ, the members in particular, and God has set some in the church. First apostles, secondarily prophets, but we were taught and we taught others. There aren't any prophets in the New Testament church. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Who wrote this? Paul did. When did he write it? Oh, I guess 59, 60, 61 A.D. When did Christ go to heaven to the right hand of the Father? Approximately June 18th or so, 31 A.D. 31, 41, 51, 61. Thirty years previous to this time, Christ had gone to heaven. I read of Agabus. I turn to 1 Corinthians 14, and it tells me, let the prophets that speak 
prophesy, meaning inspired foretelling or preaching, inspired preaching as well as just saying Germany is going to do this or Syria is going to do that, two or three, no more than three, in the course of a religious service, and that by course, or in other words, one after the other. Now today we have two. Once in a great while I've seen as many as three, and we're doing it in order. First, Lewis, now it's my turn. That by course, and it goes on to say, for the spirits, meaning spiritual gifts or revelations, of the prophets are subject unto the prophets, and it says, if anything be revealed to one, meaning one of the prophets who is to speak, let the first hold his peace, meaning he can control his gift. He doesn't just let it out in gibberish. He doesn't leap to his feet and say, I've got a message from God, everybody shut up, and so on. But it does tell you what. It tells you there were those who were called in the New Testament parlance in the language prophets. But anyway, we said that's not a rank. So even though it was mentioned secondly, there weren't any prophets in the church today. I'm not so sure of that. Thirdly, teachers. Now, of course, he lumps here all of those who would be in a teaching position, and that is a function, not a rank, teaching people. You can be tempted to say, from the Bible, error. Not true. They didn't have Bibles then. He had to teach them from whatever access he had to the scrolls of the Jewish synagogue, teach them what he had been taught through one of the apostles, like Paul or Peter or someone else, teach them what other teachers had taught him. As Paul told Timothy, teach other men, you know, and have them hold fast that which you have been given. After that, miracles. Then, gifts of healings helps governments. The word governments came in for a lot of emphasis. Actually, that Greek word is kubernao, which means pilotage. It means to steer or to guide. And it means nothing more than like a steering committee or a guidance committee or a person or individuals who might be responsible for the orderly, systematic progression of a meeting, a holy day, a meal, a potluck, an assembly, uh, some event that took place in the church doesn't mean government, meaning the mallet, you know, order, and I will order you and you will like it. It wasn't that kind of government, meaning force or authority or rule, but it was guidance. It was steerage, and the Greek word means pilotage, diversities of languages, etc. Here's a very important one. We used to really bear down on these over in Hebrews, the 13th chapter, of which there are three of them. Verse 7 is first. Remember them which have the rule over you. Now, when I was a kid, when I was a kid in school, they had a ruler. A ruler was merely a measuring stick. The teacher could rule over you with a ruler, though. Because when I was a kid in the 30s, the teacher could come by with that ruler and whack the back of your hand with it and she could make you sit up and pay attention. I once saw a teacher pick up a child. I don't think that this was good or that they should advocate it. In the case of a little kid who I remember, his name was Johnny Hardcastle, and he was Johnny Hardhead. He was a real uh, uh, rounder of a little kid. He was always causing trouble in the classroom. I once saw him do a dance on his tiptoes, almost not quite touching the floor, with her with a handful of his hair and picked him up, took him out into the cloak closet out there, and really laid it on him. And we could hear the screams and the whack, bang, you know, ouch, coming all the way through the wall. She ruled with that ruler. This isn't what is really implied here. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word God. But let us not, in the Church of God International, throw out the baby with the bathwater. 
There are scriptures concerning the ministry, concerning the interrelationship of the ministry, including apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, and elders, and the relationship between these people and each other, and the relationship between these people and lay members, very clearly spelled out in the Bible. As a matter of fact, as they, in a sense, felt their way along, almost, in a sense, through trial and error, with all of the foibles of human nature, the nuances of human behavior, the vanities, the ego that would creep into human hearts, the things that would occur in various church congregations, some of the worst things that happened to the church at Ephesus were predicted by Paul years before they took place, the things that happened in the Corinthian church, some of the things of which the Thyatiran church were guilty, where teachers like Jezebel could actually take a converted New Testament group of Christian people and actually seduce them into going back to temple prostitution and call it a religious ritual and have the people go along with it in the days of the early first century church of God. We know that in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, the ministry for the widows at tables when they would come together to eat and so on was a kind of an afterthought. So I say they sort of felt their way along. The Apostle Paul appealing time and again to the oral authority of the apostles, putting it down in writing until today, we have a fairly complete record of the way all of those things settled into shape and into workable form in the early New Testament church. Chapter 13, verse 17, in the book of Hebrews, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. What are you going to do with that? Now, that does not say, obey them, even when they do wrong. Because there are other scriptures which might ameliorate or modify this scripture. You can't get around this scripture. You can't say it isn't in the Bible. It is not erroneous to preach it. It is not erroneous to read it. It is not erroneous to urge people in the same way today as did Paul then to, quote, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, and the Greek word is suke, your lives, they watch for your lives, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. What are some of the parameters? The Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, didn't he? Jesus Christ said, the Gentiles wield great power and authority over each other. It shall not be so among you. Let him that will be your leader and so on be the servant of all. And Christ said that he was a servant and called his people friends. So there are modifying scriptures that say this is not iron-fisted rule. And it is not rule above and beyond the laws of God, nor is it rule even within the laws of God, which abuses the power of the ministry. But there is certain rule, certain authority, certain powers, discretionary powers, with certain limits placed upon it that are obviously revealed in the Bible as being given to the ministry. That we cannot deny. In verse 24, the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews, Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. Let me show you how it all happened back then, if I can. I remember when it was against the law for lay members in the Church of God to meet together without a minister. Anyone who did so was immediately suspect 
as having, in effect, an unauthorized and a clandestine meeting. Why? Because you had a leader, the head of the college, the head of the work in that time, who had had some very painful experiences. I was there. I knew of many of those experiences. In a way, I cannot blame him for teaching what he did. Because time and time again, he had occurred to him what, in fact, I think he, in many ways, had done himself in an earlier church organization, which was preaching doctrine, which even though they did on one occasion agree that what he was presenting was true, they rejected it, refused to accept new truth. That's all in the autobiography. But as he began to go along among some of the churches up in Oregon, and I speak of my father, and he ordained ministers from among the lay members. Sometimes he didn't know them that well. He might have known them for a few weeks or even a few months. They might have been very stable farmers. They might have been people who were employed in some job or another. They were certainly staunch, and he looked upon them as pillars in that small Oregon Valley community. And he would ordain them, looking at the biblical example, as a minister in that church. Before long, lo and behold, that man decided, and they had a very loose setup involving tithing. Tithing was something which was not then done to a local central authority because there was no really great work done. It was a completely voluntary thing. It was by no means clearly spelled out by the church hierarchy in the Church of God's Seventh Day as being mandatory upon all members or as going to a central hierarchy either over at Stanbury or at Salem, West Virginia. And the tithes were pretty much collected locally. The local church then would perhaps have a secretary. The secretary could be female. She would stand up and she would read. In the business part of the meeting, which would take place before the sermon, taking the place of our sermonette today, what was in the kitty and how it was dispersed and the church, the local church group, the board, would dispense a little bit of that to the minister, perhaps, would then send a portion of their tithes back to the central hierarchy at Stanbury or Salem, West Virginia, wherever. And therefore, it was impossible for that church to do any great work. The church was just not going to do a great work where it was going to come to the attention of the world. It never did. It hasn't to this day. It never shall, because it is stifled by that system. Unfortunately, it has also had the same history as the worldwide church of division, attempts at coalitions and unions, redivision, about as many leaders or heads as there are individuals to claim leadership or headship. So promptly, as quickly as my father would ordain someone, he would seem to want to gain control to get more tithes and to get a following for himself. So my father came down and began teaching and pounding into the heads of these young students, I've got to begin from scratch. We've got to have an educated ministry of young men who are trained, not only in the Bible, but in English, language, history, the arts, sciences, etc., who have a well-rounded education, but from whom we could determine through their fruits that a certain select number are being called of God to the ministry. I subscribe to that philosophy. That was an excellent philosophy. It just didn't work out that way. It began to become assumed that every young man who came to Ambassador College was there because God had called him out of the young people of the church to become trained for, quote, the work. It didn't mean you were a total failure if you went on into one of the offices 
like mail reading or letter answering or the press or somewhere else, but you were not quite as lustrous. Your star was not quite so bright. You didn't succeed at the same level as you did if you went into the ministry. You weren't quite a failure, but, you know, almost. If you didn't qualify for any of those jobs, you were a failure. So eventually, simply because the needs of the church and very small graduating classes like four students, six students, eight, there were four in my graduating class in 1956, every one of them would be absorbed directly into the work, usually into the ministry or as a minister's wife, sometimes right directly into the college, plowing under our own graduates into the classroom to become teachers. So little by little, the situation changed. My father used to say to these young men, I told them to take that $3 a week salary and chuck it in the Pacific Ocean. Because he said, I learned that if I'm going to accept some other man's salary, I'm going to have to preach what that man tells me to preach. Excellent philosophy. Marvelous example with which I concur 100%. Little did it occur to my father, I think, as he said that, to all of these young men coming along, that the time would eventually come when hundreds of them would say, say aloud to their dearest and closest friends, as one said, and I can quote him, oh, when all these things happen that are wrong and so on, I just pull a shade down over my eyes and don't look at it because I would lose my livelihood. I would have my salary cut off. One of them who said to his own beloved in-laws, family member. I would love to have you come and visit me on the campus where I live. I would let you, but my paycheck won't let you, so you can't come. So little by little, what began is quite idealistic, and I think based upon correct principles, became a kind of a monstrous abuse. The reasons for telling brethren they shouldn't assemble without a minister were quite obvious to us in the 1950s because we had many men around the country, I could cite some names but I won't, who were trying to raise up churches on their own all over the place. I had seen that from the time I was a boy. It was still happening. It came to the point where over here in the early 50s, 53, 4, 5, Big Sandy, if you saw a group of people out on the campground, six or eight or ten or a dozen of them, sitting around talking, the chances were you could go over there and kind of sidle up to the group and listen to see what was going on. There would be some guy there with a Bible. He might be semi-literate, not know what he was talking about. And he'd be espousing some doctrine or another. Some of the weirdest doctrines you ever heard got espoused in the campgrounds at Big Sandy. There were people who had a doctrine, had something they wanted to talk about, had their thing they wanted to espouse. And before you knew it, disaffection, disenchantment. False doctrine. People saying, hey, I think I'll follow this guy. He's got something I want to hear. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. Notice what the Apostle Paul saw was extant in the church at that time. And oh, can I ever relate to this. Verse 26. How is it then, brethren? 1 Corinthians 14, 26. When you come together, when you assemble as a church, brethren of the church, converted members, every one of you has a psalm. I get sent tapes. I get sent songs. People write songs, and they send them to me. But I'm not a music critic, and I do not, I'm not in the music publishing business. 
and I do not have the power to help these people make money with their music. I wish I did, but I just don't. I've written several of my own songs. Some of them I thought were quite good, but I'm probably self-deceived. But I've never had them published. They put them in some of those albums that the church put out, but they're very limited and just within the cloister group of the church and never came to the attention of anybody that is outside and in the music world. I once had the great experience of being able to sing one of my own songs and to show you how effective it was, people forgot it immediately. On Hee Haw, on the air, was seen by millions of people, a song I wrote and sang it. It never went anywhere, but, you know, absolute failure. So when people send me music, I think, I know how you feel, but I've been there. I have a drawer. I could go get it. Do you want me to? I'm tempted to do it, but I won't leave the podium here. But I've got a drawer. I've got tapes in there and letters of music and poet. I get poetry. People send me poetry. I get it all the time. And things people... I can dig this. I can identify. How is it, brethren, when you come together, everybody in the congregation has a song. Now, when you create something like that, isn't it right and normal? Is Paul saying... Let me ask you something now. I don't mean to wrongly make fun of this. Some of the songs people send me are probably quite good. Quite good. They may be publishable, and they may just be better than some of the stuff you hear on the radio today. I don't know. I'm just saying that I am not a music critic, and I can't help them because I'm not in the music publishing business. I'm not saying, and I don't think Paul is saying, that the psalms they had were bad or evil or wrong. I'm just saying he's dealing with the phenomenon that they came together and they had these ideas. Has a doctrine. A doctrine. I've got an idea. I've got a doctrine. Somebody had a new or a different doctrine. Has a tongue, a language. I got a letter the other day where somebody said they had been given the spirit language and that they had actually sat there in their seat during the services and it had just sort of come to them and they were able to pray. And then they thought that they actually got closer to God that way and they insisted that this particular gift was really right because it was in accordance with 1 Corinthians 14 but they didn't say that they'd ever had it interpreted or go on into great detail, so I don't really know what the person was talking about. Has a tongue, has a revelation, maybe about prophecy, maybe about understanding of the Scripture, has an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying the group, the whole group, and so on. Now, Paul is not saying, don't let anything be done. He's not saying, don't ever receive a psalm. He's not saying, don't ever listen to one. Don't ever listen to somebody's doctrinal idea. He's saying, let all things be done unto edifying. As he progresses through this and says, let the people speak one by one, let the other prophets judge, etc. The spirits of the prophets, verse 32, are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion. And he's talking about the local church assembly. But of peace is in all the churches of the saints. Talks about women not allowed to speak in the church. Sorry about that, ladies. I didn't write it. If any man think himself to be a prophet, verse 37, or spiritual, let him acknowledge then, if he's spiritual in the local congregation, that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. I like this next verse. Ponder it for a minute, if you will. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Now, that's interesting language. And isn't it a different approach? It does not say, if any man does not agree with me, Paul, and he is ignorant if he doesn't, that's what Paul is saying, put him out of the church. It doesn't say that. Let's emphasize the words, let 
him be. Let him be, for pity's sake. He's ignorant, so let him be. I like that. It is so comfortable to me that Paul did not say, put him out. Oh man, if you had to do that, if you had to go around, you know, I, I received a call uh, late last night, I guess it was, maybe the night before, anyway, from one of our ministers who is going to have to meet a gentleman at the door today in church services and invite him not to have to come back to church. The second time that something like that has had to happen in any local congregation of which I'm aware in six solid years in the Church of God International, that must be some kind of a record because that happens just about every week in some large WCG congregations. Minister, I guess, practically every few weeks gets up and here's his list of the latest people who are blackballed and you're not to associate with so-and-so and so-and-so. -and -so. They read their names and they stamp them with what is called Mark, you know, hair-lip dog, Mark, Mark. Anyway, and they're not to come back. They're never to come back to church again. And it's just an embarrassing, obnoxious uh, ceremony they go through. Thanks be to God. It has happened so rarely in the Church of God International. But when someone has actually had his own wife become a prostitute to feed their children, when someone has committed incest for years and years and years with his own daughter, when someone is a fugitive from justice and is actually under a sentence by the courts to go to jail for non-child support and non-wife support involved in a divorce, will not even give his address, things of this nature, I don't know. I'm just backed up against the wall. Hey, I surrender. You got me. I don't know what to do with you. But I mean, allowing you to come into church and just freely associate around among all the others and so on, and even talk it up like you're a leader, or maybe talk against the leadership. Well, now, wait a minute. If I went down here to Holly Buick and took myself a whole big pocket full of Ford literature, walked in, Hi, folks. How you doing there today? Boy, it's a beautiful Buick over there, isn't it? Here, would you like to take my little brochure about Ford. How long do you think old uh, Jack uh, Lynch down there, the leading salesman, would let me stay on that showroom floor? There are some people who don't understand it. They just don't understand it. I like the way Almighty God told the ministry to handle things like that and how thankful I am that we have not had to disfellowship. By the way, you notice something about what I just said? I didn't tell you which church or which minister or mention the man's name, and I never will. That's important. Even the man that committed the incest that we read of in the first, first Corinthians 5 is not mentioned, nor are any of the relatives mentioned, and down through history we have never known his name, and he was allowed back in the church, and we never know his name. So if any man be ignorant, he said, let him be ignorant. So covet, meaning earnestly desire to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with languages, let all things be done decently, and in order. I want to turn to some of those traditional scriptures that we have read over the years that the Apostle Paul sent to the young evangelist Timothy. First Timothy, the first chapter. These are basically instructions to the ministry. But now you lay members can look over the shoulders of the ministry. You can read what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, told your ministers to do, the kind of men they are supposed to be. We went through this with a fine-tooth comb during the conference. In verse 3 of 1 Timothy, the first chapter, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, 
rather than godly stewardship is the word, edifying, but in the sense of a steward building up the church, which is in faith, so do. Now the end, the end result, the, the whole point of Christian living, of the commandment, is love, which is unfeigned, charity, an outgoing love, out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and a faith unfeigned. So the whole underlying point is character, but the quality of character, which is love, forgiveness, and mercy, and of unfeigned faith, not pretended, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside. You know the word turned aside is in the Greek an expression which mean, lit, means literally sinned, because it means have missed the mark in Greek. The expression in Greek is some have missed the mark and turned unto vain jangling. Literally means sin because they miss the mark. The word to sin in the Hebrew means to miss the mark. Some have swerved, turned aside unto vain jangling. I like that expression too. Vain jangling. Just like a lot of bells and shattered glass and ends of corrugated tin and metal kind of, you know, banging around in the back of a metal dump truck or something. Vain jangling. Desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. And he goes on to say the law is good if a man use it lawfully. and goes on to talk about all the unrighteous things that people do. And he says in verse 12, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. That's what happened to me. I don't know if I'm the only minister in the history of, this, of, of, of the church. I think I am who actually went, not just to one person, but to several, and my father, practically begging, arguing, at first refusing, and saying, no, I cannot be ordained, I don't want to be in the ministry, writing to my wife that if anybody tried to rope me into anything like that, I'd probably deck them with the right cross, I ran in the other direction. Circumstances acted in my life, and I've had maybe you can call it a Jonah complex, but I still insist that at the time that the angel comes to me and says, Ted, you're barking up the wrong tree, you're doing the wrong thing, I will lovingly take off his shoe and kiss his foot and say thank you with a sigh of relief and go about doing something else. But then I can identify with what Paul says. And he goes on to say, verse 12, who was before, there's a phone ringing out there, I don't know if we ought to pick it up or not, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And of course, he was persecuting the church. In verse 18, he concludes this one segment. This charge I commit unto you, son Timothy, he called him, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, and that's another study in itself. There had to be some prophet who had discerned the gifts that Timothy had been given, and actually the word is... The gift that is in thee by the putting on of my hands is not the word agape or agape, which is the gift meaning of God's Holy Spirit, which we receive at baptism, but is that gift which is, quote, prerequisite for the powers and offices of an evangelist. And that is in the Greek as well. So these prophecies tie into that. That you by them might war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Now he mentions this man's name, two of them together, and we will see that he mentions him twice over a period of time. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. We don't know who they are, anything else about them. 
They were living human beings who were no doubt in the church, but had begun to rise up and teach things that they shouldn't. And going along into the third chapter, this is the famous qualifications for deacons and bishops or overseers, or ministers, in other words, and tells what they're to be like. This is a true saying. If a man, meaning a layman, a converted church member, desired the office of a bishop or, or an overseer, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, not polygamous. I think it means one at a time. Presumably she could have died and he could have married again. It doesn't mean only one wife forever and ever and ever. Vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt, meaning eager and able, to teach. Not given to wine, not a person who has a drinking problem, quote-unquote. No striker, that's so obvious, but isn't it interesting that Paul actually had to include those things? You would, you would wonder, you have to ponder, why even include those descriptions? And then it tells you a little bit about the society in which they lived. The people were different. There were, there were people of such temperament that probably at one time or another in the history of this early New Testament church, there were actual fisticuffs took place among church membership. And so Paul says if a man's going to do that, fly off the handle and strike somebody, he really shouldn't be in the ministry. Now that seems to be obvious, but Paul thought it important to include it. And I think that's interesting. Not a striker. Not greedy, a filthy lucre. Now, of course, that means he would not exploit the flock. There are people that I think do a simple little bit of mathematics in their minds. They can say, well, now, if a head of a household earns $10,000 a year, if I convince, convince him to tithe to me, that's 1000 How many heads of household have I got to get to follow me until I'm making 10000 a year? Bare subsistence, I'd starve on that, but might maybe, you know, manage 10. How many to live a little better? 20000 a year. 20? How about 30? Ah, man, 30 heads of household averaging only 10000 apiece. And if I can get them to tithe, that's a fairly nice salary. Now, I know that's never occurred to anybody, but I'm just saying it in passing. But patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well. Now, here we are with that word again. One that ruleth well his own house. In this particular verse, the Greek word is the one from which we take the English word hegemony. For example, the Soviet Union exercises hegemony today over the eastern satellites, or hegemony over Afghanistan, and so on. The Greek word is hegeomahi, hegemeoahi, or however you pronounce it. It's a very long Greek word of about four syllables, which means to lead, to command with official authority, to deem, to consider, to count, to governor or judge, to suppose, and even to think has many, many wide meanings. So when it says those that have the rule, it does mean to lead in an official capacity, not to drive, not to break their bones with a rod, not to rule as a dictator, but to lead as a guide, to lead officially designated leadership. And how should we rule in our own home, but exactly as Christ rules the church, and how has Christ treated you? Having his children in subjection, with all gravity, a child that would obey the parent. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now, I go back and I think of the many young men who were ordained before they were even married, and then as the years went by, became some of the worst examples in the church of child rearing that you ever saw, 
And I wonder why there wasn't a hands-laying-off ceremony. Because we used to have some of the worst examples in the church, of which I knew. And that's why I proposed, clear back in the early 1970s, that the big reserve segment of the Feast of Tabernacles for several hundred ministers or whatever were there was taken away and that the minister just sat out among the people and that they had a motel near where the people from their part of the country might be staying where they could serve and they could help those people and be available where their own brethren would know where they were. Some child were injured or fell sick and they could be there to serve them and wait on them. I was overruled. I never prevailed in that, but I thought it was a good idea. But I saw many examples of that where, where ministers would come along with children and didn't know how to care for those children, didn't know how to have them in subjection, I don't mean whipped down and beaten to where they had no personality, no individuality at all. And of course that was overdone in the church as well, maybe still is. For if a man know not how to rule, remember the Greek word is like hegemony, to have leadership in an official authority or official authoritative sense, but to lead. If a man know not how to lead officially, to be the ruler in that sense over his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice. Now, if on the one hand he says a widow should not be considered one of the deaconesses to be taken into the group that were called widows indeed until she's 60 years of age, if in the temple the Levite could not sing in the choir until he was, until he was 40 years of age, if God called Moses at age 40, David, anointed king at age 40, if Christ began his ministry not at age 18 or 23 or 29, but age 30, is there some significance to God's plan in the Bible that gives us the idea of what age a person should reach before he is given the responsibility of a minister of a flock of people? Is there like almost a legal age for the ministry. It does make me wonder, I've got to say that. I wonder if it was not a mistake at all times and of all purposes to ever ordain anyone 22 years of age, fresh out of college. He'd been to high school, he'd been to college, but he had never been out in the school of hard knocks. He'd never been except as a boy in part-time jobs in high school or working on campus in the college atmosphere, the head of his own ship, you know, he had never really been married, didn't have children yet, had not gone through all of that, the pangs of seeing childbirth and the, the fear and the apprehension and the uh, thing that we just heard and the, the very moving poem set to music by Jimmy Dean and the sermonette and so on, of waiting up at night and sweating it out with sick children and so on and so on, things that build some scar tissue in there and that mature people until eventually about 35 or 40, you're a completely different person than you were when you were 25 or 23. I have always wondered why it was that a man 22, 3, or 4 could stand up and shout and bang the fist on the pulpit and tell people 55 and 65 with grown grandchildren who had been out in the tractor on their two sections of wheat uh, how to live life. It just didn't seem to make sense to me because the young man, frankly, didn't know what he was talking about from an experience standpoint. But our excuse? Well, he was spiritually older. I think time has proved otherwise. I think time and experience has proved some of those men weren't spiritually older after all. They were better educated. They were better versed in the Bible. They were better speakers. They had better command of the English language. They knew more about history, maybe, but they weren't better men. They weren't necessarily better leaders, and they didn't make good ministers. So he's not to be a novice, 
Moreover, verse 7, he must have a good report of them which are without. Now ponder that for a minute. If he's never been without, take a church family whose son would come to college, who would come through imperial. You tell me he's been without. What does it mean, without? Well, it means without the church, actually. It means his neighbors in the local community. If he has never even held a job in the outside community, but worked within the church all of his life, how can he have a good reputation from them that are without? He has zero reputation from them that are without because he's never been without and is not known outside of the tightly cloistered church environment, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Goes on about deacons and so on. Saying, I know how to prevent some of these people speaking perverse things departing from the faith. I know how to prevent false teachers arising and leading people off after themselves. I'll stop that. I won't let that happen in the church. You can't find it. It isn't in the Bible. There is no such thing here as preventive legislation. If you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, oh wow, put the brethren, local lay membership, little elderly ladies, in remembrance that people are going to come speaking perverse things, giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy. Where is Paul putting the responsibility? He is putting it on the shoulders of the local lay membership. He is telling Timothy, Timothy, you don't have the responsibility alone and all by yourself. You're unable as a wise shepherd to completely and totally pro pro protect the flock from every threat in every place at all times. It can't be done because sooner or later the flock is going to just be out there and it will be vulnerable. The shepherd has got to sleep. He's got to take a lunch break. He's going to be after a little lost sheep somewhere. Now who watches the flock while he's after the lost sheep? But you know what I'm talking about. People, take a hundred members in a given congregation, can one minister be like a dictator to rule in their individual personal lives? They know what every one of them are doing on the job, who they're talking to, where they are, what they're saying, what they're thinking, their telephone conversations at all times? Well, of course he cannot. So he is telling Timothy, put the brethren in remembrance. Warn them. Tell them it's going to happen. Put the responsibility on their shoulders. You shall be a good minister of Jesus Christ nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto you have attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables. How do you do that and make the people happy who brought them to you? I've never been able to do that. But I don't think he tells me to do that, because sometimes people that want to go around with profane and old wives' fables are not going to be happy when you refuse it. A man came to me, and I, I don't judge people immediately by their dress, but their dress is indicative sometimes of what's happening in their mind. I mean, you know, I don't dress in the dark. I don't go into the closet blindfolded and just pick out things and come with one white sock and a blue sock, my jacket on outside, or wear a headband with Indian beads and have a lot of baubles like maybe the Star of David and the Catholic cross and a lot of things on me. Don't run around to church in a pair of old jeans, sneakers, and a shirt open all the way to here. But here was a guy that came up to me in one of my campaigns. That's the way he was best. Old run-down jeans, tennis shoes, had a headband, hair to here, all the way down over his shoulders, had both the Star of David and the cross, a bunch of beads and some Indian jewelry, 
And he had to be a tract. Some kind of a little biblical tract. Here, I want you to read this. No thanks, I, I don't want, I'm sure I won't bother reading it. Oh, well, you've got to read this. You've got to know the truth. I said, well, thanks a lot. I think I, I know a great deal of truth. I don't know it all, but uh, I believe what I do know is truth, and I don't really know any error that I know about. Well, you better read this. You need to search for the truth. No, thank you. I really don't want it. Boy, he got mad. Oh, he got upset. Spun on his heel. He was doing a real burn. And uh, But I didn't read what it was he was going to hand me. It had a, a, a kind of a cross and an image of this Jesus of the world on it, which immediately branded it with me as something which was absolutely not anything I was interested in. I am not a religious hobbyist. I don't go around reading a lot of religious literature. I do read the Bible a good bit. I, I enjoy that. Now, I can turn to the Psalms and sit there and just pour over a few of them in leisure moments. On the Sabbath, I'll turn to some completely irrelevant part of the Bible. I was reading a little bit of, of uh, Proverbs 31 today. It had nothing to do with my sermon. And I picked up a book called The Eastern Church. And I read a couple of articles this morning in an encyclopedia having nothing to do with this. I read about the history of Germany this morning. Just, you know, I wanted to, to uh, refresh my memory about the Halmani and so on. And I read, uh, believe it or not, out of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. I read some of Arnobius and Tertullian this morning about the dress of, and customs involving women. Because I just thought, you know, these guys were a bunch of weirdos. And sure enough, they were. They were trying to insist that women should go about, you know, bending their back under very uh, old drab garments because of the sin of Eve. And I was reading some of that in my versions out there. I've got the complete set of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. But picking up religious tracts, literature, just having an insatiable desire to just read religion the way other people think it ought to be, written by men, not me, it, it's just not one of my hobbies, so I don't do it. So he says to refuse all of that. Sometimes it's difficult. He said, these things, verse 11, command and teach. There again, you see, teach it to the local lay membership. Let no man despise thy youth. But be you an example of the believers, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come give attendance to reading, and that's good advice for any minister, read the Bible, that's what I'm doing now. Read what God's Word says, expound it, stick the nose of the congregation in the Bible and say, here's what the Bible is about to say, read what the Bible says, and then say, here's what the Bible just said, and probably, and I told the ministry this, you could concoct a sermon out of 20 scriptures, have practically no commentary except to read and expound, and probably some people are going to come up and say, boy, that was a wonderful sermon today, because our people love to hear from the Bible. It's hard to beat the Bible. The Bible is your safeguard. It's the safest ground you can stand on, is the Bible. Now, you want to preach from articles, things you read, favorite peeves, the great politi the, the, the current uh, scare, you know, about the conspiracy or whatever it is, or the new economy or the computer in Brussels, you may not be sticking to what the brethren really need to hear. Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, that I mentioned in passing earlier, etc. Verse 16, Take heed to yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you shall both save yourself and them that hear thee. Chapter 5 is interesting, just in one way I want to go through part of it. It's talking about the elders and the widows and so on. And it says in verse 19, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Interesting language. Them, meaning the elders, that sin, rebuke before all. I take it to mean all elders. 
but there is no proof of that. One may assume either to be true. It would seem based upon what God shows throughout with regard to respect for an elder that one would not want to rebuke an elder in the congregation in front of the congregation as a whole. So I would say that I would lean toward the understanding of this verse, the elders at sin rebuke before all the other elders, that others also may fear. But I cannot prove that, and that is not me stating it dogmatically. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without preferring one another, doing nothing by partiality. You're not establishing cliques or personality cults or a vertical hierarchy. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Be patient. Wait. Watch. Keep thyself pure. Do not be partaker of other men's sins. Drink no longer water, he said that. Verse 24, some men's sins are open beforehand. You can see them obviously. Other men, quiet, subtle. Behind the scenes, they follow after. Verse 25, likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. In chapter 6, a great deal more instruction. Verse 3, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, etc. Verse 20, to conclude this whole segment, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to your trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of knowledge. The Greek word science is knowledge. So-called, falsely so-called. It's not knowledge, but theory and hypotheses and false doctrines and vain janglings and babblings and so on, falsely so-called, but which parades as knowledge. The church was only guarded and protected by the thin blue line, you might say, as society is protected by the thin blue line, as it's been called, of the police force. The police, of course, in society have a far different role than the ministry of the church. Notice in chapter 2, 2 Timothy, in verse 15, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly discerning or dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings. Why did Paul encourage Timothy time and time again along this line of thinking? For they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as does a canker. I've heard it likened into rotten fruit. One apple will spoil a whole bunch, etc. He use, uses like a canker, that is the external type, like a boil. It's not cancer as we know it today. Of whom is, he names him again, quite a number of months, perhaps a year or two apart, Hymenius, and another man now is in concert with him, Philetus, of whom we have not heard previously. But in 1 Timothy 1.20, Hymenius, together with Alexander, was one of the ringleaders of false doctrine that he warned Timothy about previously. Who, and now we learn a little more about those men, concerning the truth of Erd, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. There were some willing to accept that particular false doctrine. I won't read the rest of this, but go to the fourth chapter, and it says, The time will come, verse 3, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own loss will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Now, what can Timothy do about it? The answer is nothing. Can't do a thing about it. Now he's telling Timothy, be ready for it, Timothy. It's going to happen. The time's going to come. It will happen. And it did, and it is, and it shall. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things... Endure afflictions, do the work of the evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. And so, 
Paul shows that he could not necessarily prevent everything that was going to happen. In Titus 1 and verse 5, just one verse, he told Titus, For this cause I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. Ordain elders in every city. Those elders, I take it, were simply lay members. They were not people who were necessarily graduates of some school somewhere, like sitting at the feet of a great teacher, as did the Apostle Paul, but were local lay members who could qualify to be bishops or elders, pastors, over the church. In chapter 3, in verse 9, he tells Titus, Titus, who was half Greek and half uh, Jewish, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they're unprofitable in vain. A man that is an heretic, or factious, is actually the meaning of that word, after the first and second admonition, reject. Oh, then here is cause for Titus to decide, no, I'm sorry, you really should not be coming back and fellowshipping with us anymore if after two warnings, look, this is false doctrine, we just can't have it here, the man is invited, don't bother to come back. The only things that I can see in the Bible for which disfellowshipment or simply inviting someone not to come back. Disfellowshipment is distinct from, quote, marking, end quote. You know the word marking is, of course, in a sense, a very abused word. The word mark does not mean to stamp, to make a check mark, to ink, to label, to stencil, to blackball, or to even publicly name. It merely means you quietly take note of, mentally, someone who is preaching a false doctrine and then don't fellowship with them in your own environment, have them into your home, take them out to dinner, etc. But that's on your shoulders, your responsibility in Romans 16, 17, as a lay member. Brethren, lay membership, take note of those who preach false doctrine, etc., and avoid them, is what the Bible says. Disfellowshipment, that's something the ministry does. Marking, taking note of, that's something the lay membership does. What a difference between that and the practice of the WCG today, which simply does not understand the Bible in that regard. Here, heresy, false doctrines, being factious, meaning leading into a little group by himself, after the first and second admonition or warning, reject, knowing that he as such is subverted and sins, being condemned of himself. So incest, heresy, false teachers being unruly, etc., those were infractions for which a person could be invited not to come back. Years ago in the church, and I've actually heard this recently, so I want to make sure that everybody gets this one very loud and clear. Let's turn to one of the parables of Jesus in the 13th chapter of Matthew. This scripture has been used time and time again to support the idea that a minister should never ask a person not to come back if he's teaching false doctrine. And it's the parable of the tares. I actually remember people very high up quote-unquote, in the church, that believed that is what this scripture said. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 25. Well, I'll begin in verse 24. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, a tare is like cheap wheat. In other words, it looks like wheat. It's very hard to tell unless you're a wheat farmer. And went his way. But when the blade was sprung up, and brought forth fruit. Then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in your field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Will you then that we go up and gather them up? 
And he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather you first the tares, and bind them in the bundles, burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. So people have said, There will be tares in every local congregation. He doesn't say, Root them out. But let them grow up together, and Christ will take care of that when he comes. Because you can't know perfectly a tear from the wheat. Is that what he is saying? Well, let's see what the Bible says. Because, you know, he goes on to explain it. In the last of verse 36, the disciples say, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. The field is the world. Oh. The field is not the church. The field is the world, and that Greek word means exactly what it says. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. Well, then the good seed are the church, are they not? They are the children of the kingdom, and he that sowed them, gave them his spirit, is Jesus Christ. But the bad seed, the tares, are of whom? But the tares are the children of Satan the devil, of the wicked one. They're his kids, his children. And where are they sown? In the world. Not in the church. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Oh, are we to tolerate, as the ministry or the lay membership together, tares in the church? That's not what this parable is saying at all. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, it says in the margin, the consummation of the age, which is preferred. And the reapers are the angels. Look at the 14th chapter of Revelation, Revelation uh, 7, uh, the 144,000, and uh, the other scriptures that talk about the two harvests of the earth, where the reapers are the angels. And of course, Matthew 24, the angels should gather out from the four winds of heaven, all of the saints, and bring them together to meet Christ in the air. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this age, or the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom, because it will now be his kingdom when he comes, all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, the lake of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. No, no, no. This is not talking about the church. It is talking about the church as being the wheat in the world and the tares out all among wherever the wheat is growing that are sown by Satan the devil. And it is not the responsibility of the church to overcome the tares or to root them out, root and branch and so on, but for the children of the kingdom who are the members of God's church to cling together for mutual support, protection, fellowship, loving understanding, and so on, but it is not a parable which can be used to justify allowing evil, when it is very clear that it is evil, false doctrine, heresy, vain janglings, endless genealogies, Jewish fables, old wives' tables, tales, rather, what have you, to abide and to flourish and to become fruitful in the church. Let's turn to the book of Acts, Notice what the Apostle Paul did and what he said. Now, first of all, when he stopped by to talk to the Ephesian elders in the 20th chapter, he didn't go to Ephesus. Verse 16, Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus. He would not spend the time in Asia, which was that province of Asia Minor. 
For he hasted, if it were possible, to be in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. So he went to Miletum, which is a tiny seaport village south of Ephesus. And he began to reason with them, verse 18, reminded them how he served them and was humble with them. And verse 20, kept nothing back. Now he said, verse 22, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. He knows that he's probably going to die. Verse 24, I count not my life dear to me, to myself. And verse 25, Now behold, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops or overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Isn't it interesting here? This is always spoken of as the Ephesian elders, because the Bible says in verse 17, called the elders of the church. In 1 Peter 5, the Apostle Peter refers to the elders and says, I myself who am also an elder. And we begin to get the picture that the term elder was never a rank, but was a collective term speaking of all of the ministry as a whole, some of whom might be apostles, some of whom might be bishops or overseers, who would be over a flock. They might have even rotated. There is very great evidence that there may have very well been up to three or four or more elders, and that one of them might have had a responsibility over the congregation for a year or two, and that another would take that particular responsibility for a year or two, and so on, but that they were not all in place permanently as the pastor, which is merely a, a term as a shepherd, a pastoral term, and not necessarily a spiritual one, over the congregation. Take heed, therefore, to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops or overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that I warned you. Now, brethren, I commend you to God, and so on. Interesting language. Number one. He didn't tell the church about it. He didn't go to the Ephesus church and say, watch your ministers, and if any of them get out of line, you report to me. Did he? Didn't even go to Ephesus. He told the ministry, this is going to happen. Now, what preventive legislation did he put in place to make sure it wouldn't happen? None. None whatsoever. You don't see it. It isn't there. He didn't say, any of you that see that happening, you get to me immediately. I'm in charge. I'll take care of it. He just said, I warned you, and I bawled. I cried with you. I prayed with you. I told you it's going to happen. Where did he place the responsibility? Is this Paul assuming the responsibility for keeping the Ephesian church pure and free from anybody going off doing his thing? No. It was physically impossible for him to do so. Was he setting in place certain rules and regulations and certain protective mechanisms whereby these people could prevent some of their own number from doing it. No. Was he telling the local lay membership, you watch your ministry, which some churches do, by the way, and you report directly to me if your minister gets out of line. And there, and even though ministers might deserve it, there are ministers today in the worldwide church who are being canned and fired and transferred because upset lay members can rat on them and can write a, a letter, a complaining letter to headquarters. It happens. It's been set in place. They've been urged to do so. So you have a nightmare. This is a completely different approach than that that is taken by the church generally today.
not the Church of God International. I hope that at all times we will follow this very same approach and be biblical as we possibly can in the function of the ministry, the role of the ministers, and in the role and the function of the lay membership to the ministry or toward the ministry. A lot of people seem to believe that the church is an end in itself. The church is not an end, it is a means to an end. The church is not the kingdom. The church is halfway house to the kingdom. It is a place of assembly of responsible thinking locally members who can be taught, who can be guided by a ministry which to some extent does have the responsibility because they do have to give account, but who cannot make the decisions for you, who cannot live your life for you, who are not going to be able to see or to detect every attitude or sin that you have, who have two things to do, worry about themselves and worry about the flock. Remember what Paul said to Timothy, you will both save yourself and them that hear thee, and how Paul said of himself, wretched man that I am, and say that he had better watch because even after preaching to others he could be found a castaway. So they, just like you, only get one shot at it. They may be the captain of the team, but they have their own personal responsibilities as well toward God. The church is the halfway house of the kingdom, it is not the kingdom. The church is a body of believers, an assembly of people who are striving to overcome. It is not a group of people who already have overcome. Christ said in Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame. Christ only has already overcome. We are overcomers, overcoming, but we have not yet overcome. When I read letters like we read to the ministry here and discussed, the people who were put out for smoking, put out because of non-attendance, there was a man, and he hasn't been reinstated, who told me this story, who went and his minister knew he was gone to another church in a distant state, visiting relatives, and attended two Sabbaths in a row, came back to his own community, got a call by the minister, you are out of the church for non-attendance. But, but, but and had no recourse, he was not heard, he was not allowed to explain, they didn't come to visit him, and he's out of the church. Now he's in the CGI, because he visited out of state. You see the extremes to which control, making decisions for people, can finally come. There was a very good reason for people not to meet without a minister originally. Notice how many people in the CGI are meeting in private homes and families, the extended church, host groups, people, some of them are women who might host a group. Sure, host just someone who says, sure, you're, happy, you're welcome to sit on my divan or, or my easy chair and listen to the tape. It's not a great vaunted office, for pity's sake, it's somebody who's just doing a service. The church is not supposed to eject from among its membership every individual who is weak, who has a habit, who doesn't understand, who hasn't learned yet, who is of a different opinion who might believe in vegetarianism. Paul said, O wretched man that I am, lest after, and I mentioned that, preaching to others, I myself ought to be, a, uh, be found a, fall, a castaway. The church, in a sense, is a motley collection of individuals who are having loving fellowship together for the purpose of protecting, encouraging, edifying, and supporting one another. You have the responsibility to do the, these seven things. First of all, to try the spirits. 
the Ephesian elders, the Ephesian church, were congratulated for that, and Paul told Timothy that. You try the spirits. Secondly, to follow the leadership only as the leadership follows Christ. Thirdly, if a leader or a man disappoints you, he has not sullied your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's impossible for him to do so. Fourth, realize that you will become upset. You will become emotionally confused. Hundreds and hundreds are. Thousands are today among our brethren in another organization. Bewildered, hurt, but, and there have been suicides, and there will yet be. You will be confused, burnt, bewildered, and hurt only to the degree that you have become emotionally dependent upon a man. Only to the degree you let somebody hurt you will he hurt you. If you build the protective shield of Jesus Christ of Nazareth around yourself in your Christian life, and you know it says in the Bible, all men have sinned, you will not give your emotions and give your very life's substance and the very fabric of your daily life into the hands of a man. So then, no matter what that man does, he cannot upset you to the point that you're just so distracted and you're so emotionally upset that you're practically suicidal. And some people have become suicidal, and some people, I think, have lost their spiritual lives because of their emotional dependence upon a man. Fifth, always believe this, man will always, inevitably, sooner or later, disappoint you. Jesus Christ never will. Man will always disappoint you. Jesus Christ never will. Sixth, believe it or not, God will not always work it out your way. Reminds me, you probably heard this recently, the guy down here in Louisiana somewhere, the rivers were flooding, and they were flooding, and the fire department sent a truck to the neighborhood, we're evacuating this low-lying level, everybody get out. And he thought, no, I'm a Christian man, I've lived a good life, I'm going to depend on the Lord, I'm going to just stay right here, I'll depend on the Lord. This was on TV just last week, I think. And so he stayed there, and the waters rose, and they came up, and he moved up into the upstairs. Finally, he's looking out the upstairs window, and here comes the boat. And the county fire department put some rescue workers in a boat with a bullhorn. Everybody evacuate. All you folks now cling to your housetops and so on. Get out. This is the last call. Waters are rising. The flood hasn't crested yet. No, I'm a Christian man. I've lived a good life. I'm just going to depend on the Lord. The Lord will take care of me. Stay here and pray about it. So he did. And finally, he's standing on his roof, and the water rising up over his hips. Helicopter comes overhead, and the bullhorn down, let down a rope ladder, and so on. Okay, get aboard. This is the last chance. I mean, the flood's rising. Everybody's going to be split. Oh, I'm a Christian man. I've lived a good life, and I'll just let the Lord work it out. So he stayed there, and the floods came, and he drowned. Well, next instant, he's supposed to be standing before St. Peter. He looks at St. Peter, and he says, I understand it. He said, what in the world? He said, I've trusted you. I trusted in the Lord, and I knew that you'd take care of me, and you let me die. And St. Peter says, what are you talking about? We sent the fire department, we sent a boat, we even sent a helicopter, and you refused every one of them. Well, you know, God will not always work it out your way. There are thousands of people who are sitting still for lies, hypocrisy, and abuse, and they're saying over and over and over again, but we don't have any responsibility. 
God will somehow work it out. But God is following a practice of non-interference today. Seventh and finally, in the final analysis, you must decide. In the final analysis, you must decide. My father said this, and it's absolutely true. The only authority the ministry has over the lay membership is whatever authority the lay membership allows the minister to have. I use the analogy, and I still will, because we are required to do so in bigger buildings. I don't think we are required to do so here in Tyler. No, I see we don't have them here. But if you're familiar with the bar, which is called panic uh, latches on doors, they are a big bar, and they're connected to the actual, you know, the lock. So that if you even lean against them, they just spring open. And they're put just a little bit below the middle of the door, and they're in all theaters and auditoriums and places of public assembly, where if a fire could break out, even though they're locked, you couldn't get in them from the outside. They can be locked, but from the inside, just lean against them, and they both swing wide open. And I use that analogy about the church, and it's still a very good one, that the church is equipped with panic bars. The church is not locked so that you can't get out. We may be able to lock the door so that not just anybody and everybody, especially somebody who wants to cause trouble or whatever, could get in, but the doors literally swing both ways, and they are equipped with panic panels, so that if a person decides and makes their own decision to do this or that, to leave or go somewhere else, they are completely free to do that. You see, in the communist bloc, they are the only country in the world that I know of in all of history, as a matter of fact, that's been pointed out by our system and by our government, who have built a wall not to keep invaders out, but to keep their own citizens in. That's what that shameful wall through East Berlin is all about. They shoot people trying to flee from communism to freedom. They kill them and burst the machine gun fire, put ravenous dogs on them. They have electric fences and spotlights and towers. They've recently moved them back a little bit to try to pretty it up in a kind of a cosmetic gesture. But you know the story of years and years and years since the early 1960s at the building of the Berlin Wall and Checkpoint Charlie. And when you go over there to the museum and see those little old carts and the tunnels and the little armored vehicles and hear the stories of people that even made man-made balloons out of discarded raincoats and the desperate desire of some of the people in East Berlin among the Germans to get to a free nation, it is indicative of the desire of those people for freedom. That is not the way God's church functions. God's church is a place of free men of free choice and of personal responsibility. The ministry had a marvelous ministerial conference, a time of rededication, a time of charging batteries, of getting to know and love one another and refreshing acquaintances and meeting new people, even some of them newly ordained and everybody with one voice said it was the best conference we've ever had and I certainly felt so. We had absolutely not one single display even uh, from the, who knows, you know, from any corner of the room of any kind, of a bad attitude of any kind. We didn't have any controversy of any kind. It was really a marvelous conference, and everyone went back charged up and encouraged, especially, whoops, there it goes. I knew it would happen before it's over. Sorry. Your ears. But especially for the growth in the work and the uh, new television 
broadcasts that are going out and the tremendous growth of the mailing list and the fact that we were in raw figures because last year we had a, a an estate I think that came in of a reasonably large amount and we're going up against that so if you look only at normal income we're at about the rate of a 14 percent increase today above the year to date last year so all they really heard was very 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 good news well take to heart what I've said because I've not only gone over what the ministry heard during the conference of the role of the ministry and the responsibility of the ministry toward the church, but the role of the layman toward the ministry, especially those final seven things that I gave you.